Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is August 12th, 2022, and while you may think it's vacation time for many people on Capitol Hill and the FDA, we still see a lot of news emerging. First up is monkeypox. This week, the FDA signed off on an EUA for Bavarian Nordic's monkeypox vac- vaccine, Genios. Sarah, you looked at the circumstances that led to the authorization. What did you find? So um, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. So um, I think our a lot of our listeners probably know we um, two weeks ago, I guess now, or last week, I should say, um, you know, the administration did the the pub, the more general public health declaration for um, monkeypox, kind of saying it's an emergency and triggered certain authorities from the government, but that did not include a trigger for FDA to issue emergency use authorizations. But when they did the first public health emergency declaration, they sort of hinted that they wanted to go with a monkeypox dose sparing strategy where you would um, basically be able to administer one fifth of the dose that's currently approved, um, but you would administer it intradermally instead of subcutaneously. um, And that would but to do that, again, FDA would need to issue an EUA. So then this week, what happened was HHS Secretary Becerra did do that second public health emergency declaration that allows them to issue EUAs. Um, however, before I get into the vaccine stuff, I just want to say what's like really interesting about that is that, you know, with COVID and other things, um, I think we're sort of used to them, you know, issuing that sort of declaration for FDA to issue EUAs like broadly. So that would sort of open it up to therapeutics or diagnostics and so forth to also go that pathway. And this very specifically was only for vaccines. Um, so just like kind of interesting to think about. It's it's really not clear to me how they can make the case that there's a need to be flexible in terms of the regular regulatory standard for vaccines, but there's not a therapeutic need or, you know, um, in particular, given that there there are no approved therapeutics for monkeypox and the one that um, is being used to some extent is, you know, there's certainly lots of reports of lack of ease of access and so forth. So um, and once you actually get the disease, it it's, it's qu- can be quite painful. There, it can be lethal. So there's certainly a need there. So it's a little bit confusing to me. And they have not wanted to be transparent about, you know, why they aren't opening the option of EUAs yet for therapeutics. But so to go back to the vaccine, what they essentially did was, you know, go through with the plan that they had already kind of teed up. They um, um, provided, I guess, a bit more clarity on why they felt comfortable doing that. Um, and Sue Sutter, you know, who wrote the initial story about that for us had had actually been told this by FDA um, that they there was a older um, study basically using immunogenicity data that showed that, you know, administering a smaller dose intradermally was um, equivalent in immune response um, to the subcutaneous dose. What I found interesting when sort of questioned about this on the press conference this week um, in terms of, okay, well, what is the commitment to sort of follow up on this strategy and make sure, you know, it is as effective as we think it's going to be? Caleb pointed out, well, you know, we don't really actually know how effective this vaccine is in people to begin with, which I thought was sort of um, 
funny. I, I mean, I, I obviously, I don't think it's like a secret. They were trying to hide it, but I'm maybe it's just one of those things like I don't think the general public tends to pick up on, right, in these <laughs> situations. Um, and so I go, went back and looked at the label and, you know, it turned out that, yeah, you know, the the monkey, this vaccine for monkeypox had been studied in animal models, and then they had done some, you know, immunogenicity studies in humans for immune response. And I guess, you know, it's not too difficult to realize why that was. It's because, you know, monkeypox hasn't been like a huge issue over, you know, um, certainly not in the U.S., but even in places in Africa where it's more endemic, it's not like they've had floods of cases, so it's a bit harder to do human studies. But it's just interesting to think about, you know, in, in, in one way, there's been some pushback I've seen in recent days to FDA making this decision to change the strategy. And on the other hand, it's maybe not such a different level of data than what they issued the approval on. Um, but it's it's just notable. Um, there's a few things notable to me about this. I think we could I could probably spend the whole podcast talking about <laughs> this because I find the situation fascinating. But um, one is that um, former um, one of the former heads of the vaccine vaccine review at FDA, Phil Krauss, who you know we know left the FDA um, earlier this year. Um, you know, he never really transparently spoke about it, but it seemed like it was over disagreements around vaccine strategy and COVID. Um, and he seemed to, along with Marion Gruber, be pushing for sort of stronger data um, standards to approve COVID boosters and was getting pushed back um, from other parts of the administration. So he and um, Luciana Borio, who's a former FDA chief scientist, wrote an op-ed in STAT that actually came out, you know, a little bit before the formal decision on the dose-bearing um, decision. And they sort of pushed back on making this decision on the data, raising concerns that, you know, we already don't have a good idea how well this vaccine works, and this is going to make it even harder. Um, they also just they talked about some other things, but which had already, I think we had reported on a bit well known, which is just, it's harder to administer vaccines intradermally. Um, you, a lot of people are not, who know how to administer vaccines subcutaneously, don't know how to do it the other way. So there's gonna need to be a lot of like training involved here. And it, it seems like there's a little bit more risk that if you don't do it really well, you will um, potentially underdose somebody and that can lead to problems. And they also poked a little bit at some of the scientific data from that 2015 study. Um, I think there's like some questions as to whether, you know, um, the immune response from this um, interdermal approach will be as long lasting as the immune response from the subcutaneous thing. Um, but anyway, like I said, I just find this like decision and issue really fascinating, especially because I am, um, you know, on the, uh, there's people in kind of like criticizing this decision now and saying like did they really have the science to make this decision um and data and on the other hand with COVID I think we've seen FDA get hit a lot particularly in recent months for people saying oh they're too slow they're not willing to be flexible um you know and I I, I just like it's hard for me to grab I like I sort of understand where people are coming from right it's like you, you want them to be flexible, but you also want to be have sort of confidence that that flexibility is based on something you can trust. But I, I think people get uncomfortable with the realities of where we end up in public health emergencies, right? Which is EUA pathway is designed to allow for flexibility and some different, some essentially 
lower standards in an emergency because in an emergency, the idea is people might be willing to take a sort of a different risk or a different benefit risk calculus. And I think we keep people maybe forget about that. So you can't have it both ways. You can't sort of, um, if you want to get that higher level of data and that higher standard, it's going to take longer. If you want FDA to move faster, you're going to have to probably be comfortable in a little bit of uncertainty. Um, and I think that's really hard for people. The other thing though, I do think that like FDA doesn't always help themselves so much um, in communicating all of this because I think people have gotten confused or just don't quite get that there is this, like I said, a different EUA standard. And sometimes when FDA rolls out these EUAs for the vaccines for COVID or monkeypox, whichever, they keep saying, oh, you know, we've, they met our standards, it's safe and effective. And so they're they're sort of using the language you ex you expect them to use for an, a traditional approval for EUAs, and so I think that adds to the confusion, right? They they don't want to necessarily harp on the fact that like there is a different data quality. So I think it just I don't know. There's just a lot of fun I think um, regulatory linguistic things to think about about you know and psychology psychological things too about kind of what people want uh, do they really want what they say they want when it comes to these things i don't know like i said i should probably stop before um uh, you guys you know cut me off yeah it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting issue you know it because we've seen this before with covid but we're also seeing you know the we're also seeing the uh, you know a lot of groups complaining that they can't get access to the vaccine so they're trying to increase access to the vaccine and then we're getting we're still getting this you know pushback like we don't know it work you know you, know, you don't know if it works why are you proving stuff with no you know with no data and in and so forth but i i guess one of the things that i also noticed in your story was they the fda wasn't really responding to questions about kind of their pharmacovigilance strategy on this i mean are are they worried that the like the 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 subcutaneous versus the intradermal, you know, st uh, uh, injection will have like a different safety profile, or is, is so, it? So that's actually one of the things that I think is a bit more known. The safety profile does seem to be different. I, I do, um, and I do, I, I don't know the way FDA has described it. It didn't seem different in a way that would really like necessarily impact how many people would get vaccinated you know um but one thing i did find interesting i think in the um phil kraus and luciana borio pieces they mentioned that um i think it was about 20 percent of people in that study who got the interdermal approach actually didn't go back to get their second shot and they worried that that was you know maybe due to just some of the side effects and I, you know, FDA has been very transparent. I'm like, because some people, instead of doing this dose sparing strategy, had started thinking about, or even some states had implemented just like a give one dose or give one dose and wait longer to come back because to get more people first doses. And FDA is pretty clear you need two doses. So if there are any side effects that lead to like a higher level of people not returning for their second dose with this formula, that, that would be a problem, you know? So that would be one thing to track. Although, like I said, just like in reading the list of side effects, they didn't strike me as things like that people would like be, you know, overcome about, you know, like kind of things like, you know, it's annoying, but you move on. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Um, but, but it's also an efficacy thing that they want to, you, you know, that is, a is I think to me, you know, maybe, the bigger issue here, right? You want to, we want to be able to know, like, 
who how many people got which you know administration method or the other and how they ended up doing because again we do want to have a sense of like okay right now we're in an emergency this is what we think is best but like you know assuming we're not eradicating monkeypox forever you want we want to know what's the best thing to do six months from now or a year from now if we wind up in this situation hopefully don't have a um a supply shortfall right like yeah. just like right now with covid um we have incredible amounts of vaccine for better or worse in the u.s so if there was any question of you know dosing strategy or so forth, you would hope that, you know, you knew you weren't guessing, you know, whether to administer it one way or the other. So I think that's the big thing. Um, Actually, like, so after I wrote that story, HHS did get back to me and they seem to suggest CDC, which, you know, partners with FDA and a lot of this tracking does seem comfortable that they will be able to distinguish which shot people got. Um, or, um, but I think we'll see because it'll um, it'll be really important to get that data and, and to try and figure out again, like, do people who get one formulation or the other do better, both in terms of safety and in terms of, you know, how the vaccine works? Because, I mean, everybody sort of says, like, we have some sense there's some benefit from this vaccine, but they don't really have a sense of, OK, like, I don't think they think it's going to, again, like prevent you from getting monkeypox, but it it's more a matter of like, okay, how much less severe or what sort of, you know, um, level of severity does it decrease and so forth. So figuring those things out um, and then knowing what doses types of vaccine people got will be really important when you don't have clinical trial data to go off of. Um, just for our listeners who who aren't medical professionals or doctors or whatever, and if ne- don't know the difference, the, the subcutaneous method is like a traditional injection, right? Where they just stick it in your arm. But the the uh, <clears throat> intradermal one go, is it right? It goes farther under the skin. Is that is that is that right? Um. So I actually think that intradermal goes less deep. <laughs> Oh, OK. But um, somebody um, I'm going to look up this. There's I know this is a podcast, so it's not really good. I saw like a really good graphic on it, this. Um, um, and maybe if we can like link to it on the podcast, if, if it's a, you know, something that's not um, copyright or something. <laughs> but yeah, so I think it's some of it is like the angle. It's the types of needles you use. It's saying it's just harder to administer, but it's not necessarily because it's deeper um, oh, okay. is my understanding but um yeah and i guess like i read an interesting piece about you know for smallpox that was how this was done but they developed like this special like it's almost like looks like a two-pronged needle i guess that made it easier and i i don't think the expectation here is to to use those older needles i don't know if we even have you know supply of those but you know another thing like procedurally i'm curious to see what happens is again because this is going to require some amount of training and be logistically a little bit more challenging for you know all these states and localities doing this monkeypox vaccine work um they're going to get the vaccine right in the same formulation and same sort of file sizes right either one way or the other, it's just going to be like using different needles and administering a different dosage. So how long does it actually take to transition over and what percentage end up getting 
administered subcutaneously versus intradermally moving forward will be interesting to see, right? Nobody's standing um, <laughs> in the States, you know, putting guns to somebody's head saying, now you have to do it this way. So are there going to be training barriers and so forth that make them less likely to do this newer allowed method um, would be interesting because obviously there'd be consequences to how many people get the vaccine then. Um, again, perhaps that if then since the need is high and jurisdictions, if they have sort of a, a more people that want the vaccine than they have people, they'll be motivated to find people who can administer, you know, the vaccine, um, the intradermal way so they can help as many people as possible. But I think that'll be another interesting thing to track just because we know like the U.S. <laughs> um, we don't have like this great record of track record of like health policy trickling down perfectly, right? So this is like a decision on high of allowing, you know, places to do this, but it, it doesn't automatically mean given how things are packaged and how the administration goes, this will just, you know, we didn't flip a switch when this announcement was made to everybody getting the vaccine differently. So f seeing how that transition goes, I think will be interesting. Yeah, it'll be a real, uh, real world uh, data challenge, I think, for uh, uh, CDC and whoever else is sort of looking at the uh, uh, subsequent efficacy of the vaccine to say, you know, even if, the, you know, it was correctly scored as an, you know, intradermal administration, you know, was it well administered? You know, did did the training actually work and through, you know, did, did the uh, uh, patient receive the vaccine in the way that, uh, you know, is optimal for that round of administration and, uh, you know, how to tease out the question of like, well, maybe it doesn't actually work as, as well through this method, or maybe, you know, what we really needed was better training, not, uh, you know, and the, uh, the dose sparing actually sort of was the, was the best approach if we had been able to do it well. It'll be, uh, be I think, a, a real challenge to see how that, uh, how that shakes out. And uh, um, I also want to say, uh, you know, sort of echoing your point earlier, uh, Sarah, that it is very surprising that uh, uh, FDA has not done this with, uh, um, therapeutics, especially given that there's, you know, one approved in Europe for uh, um, for smallpox that is, you know, approved. Oh, sorry, for monkeypox that is, that is only approved for smallpox here, uh, um, and they're not uh, they're not sort of, kind of eager to uh, to roll that out in a uh, um, in a widespread way until they get a uh, a trial looking at uh, monkeypox. And uh, you know, this seems like a classic situation of uh, you know people want this treatment, but they. Uh, um, the FDA is uh, and you know, public health officials are dragging their feet, if you uh, if you will, on it. Whereas uh, you know, as we saw with the vaccine debates on, uh, under COVID, you know, forcing people to get something sort of kind of raises all kinds of uh, you know worries and objections and stuff like that. But in this situation, uh, um, you know, like an expanded access debate, basically, you know, the the folks want it. I don't think they're particularly sort of kind of worried about. Uh, whatever uh, side effects or uh, lack of efficacy that uh, um, may result from it. But uh, still, the, um, the public health officials uh, you know, don't want to uh, um, provide it more uh, uh, in a more wide, widespread manner until they get uh, get better data. Yeah. And like like I said, I it just, you know, it, it's on my list to sort of bug, <laughs> you know, HHS and FDA about a little bit more and try to push them for like a better explanation of, you know, what I, you know, how can you say, you know, there's a justification for the EUAs for these vaccines in this way and not for therapeutics, um, particularly because, you know, usually, and as we saw with COVID, the standard for therapeutics 
there's more flexibility in being willing to lower the standards, right, for therapeutics than for vaccines. Because when you talk about a therapeutic, in this case, you're talking about people that already are sick, right? So they, the trade-off of the benefit risks um, and so forth situation becomes different because they are sick and they are willing to usually, you know, take a different risk calculus than somebody who is healthy, maybe at higher risk of monkeypox than, you know, um, other people in the population, but at the same time is healthy now, there's no guarantee they're going to get monkeypox and they can also take other steps, right, to put themselves in situations to avoid it. So usually it's harder to get a vaccine, the standards for vaccines lowered. And as we saw with COVID, the FDA basically described their COVID vaccine initial standard as EUA plus, you know, they required fairly large studies that are more traditional outcome studies that we expect more from, um, you know, traditional approval for the vaccines. So it, 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 there's something strange here to me about, you know, being willing to do the vaccines first, given the preventative versus, you know, preventative nature of vaccines versus the the need for therapeutic treatment. And I, I know that like, you know, I've people have said, talk, you know, monkeypox certainly doesn't seem to be as lethal as COVID, but we're also still learning, um, I think, about the form of the virus that's circulating now. So well, there's just a lot of questions. And um, like when I was talking to um, the chief scientific officer of the um, company that makes this therapeutic TPOX, they were saying that, you know, they feel like there's been some downplay of the lack of severity of monkeypox um, cases going on right now. Um, they, I don't know if they're, they think that's because like sometimes just traditionally that's how monkeypox has, you know, played out in populations or um, how people are making the COVID comparisons or so forth. But um, I mean, this is, a very painful and uncomfortable disease to have, and it takes a long time to clear. So there's definitely people that want, you know, anything that can help them. Um, and I certainly understand where FDA is coming from and sort of um, F both FDA, NIH, and CDC leaders wrote in that NEGM talking about how they really want to get randomized controlled trial for the tr trial data for this therapeutic. Um, you know, I think nobody questions the the need, like we talked about with the vaccines, like you, you want to help people in an emergency as best you can without sort of preventing ever knowing the answers that we ultimately need if we need to keep using these products, right? You don't want to be guessing forever, <laughs> right? And then that's the most sort of, I think, ethical thing you can do for people is get the best data you have in the long run. But um, it, it does seem like inconsistent that FDA, where FDA is willing to flex here and where they're not. Of course, like I said, given how the public sentiment has been, you know, they'd flex for the therapeutic and then get the, sort of the same <laughs> pushback. But um, yeah, I think it's, there, it must be something about the human condition and how, <laughs> how we think about things because, you know, everybody always sort of wants what they can't have. And then when they get it, they're like, wait, but did you really give us something as good a quality <laughs> as we wanted? <laughs> <laughs> and you never know they could be working on it and just haven't finished it yet so <clears throat> yeah, yeah but it. i mean but the thing is so uh, this is what i want to go back to because i think in some of my the responses i've gotten from government or the way people people have been interpreting what happened with the declaration from secretary Becerra. secretary Becerra could have issued a declaration, a public health emergency declaration that gave FDA the authority to issue EUAs 
for, you know, therapeutics, vaccines, diagnostics. That wouldn't mean he was saying, okay, there's a TPOX EUA or okay, FDA, you have to issue a TPOX EUA, right? That's not what they're saying when they do that. They're just saying there's the ability to do that if you have sort of an application or you have the data and you think that is something that should be done. So I think like that's also why, again, I don't know why, right? Like you can just sort of give them the authority to then have it if they need it without, like I, I you know, I wasn't necessarily expecting them to grant the EUA for TPOT, for an EUA for TPOX at the same time they did this vaccine strategy, which, you know, because again, of what they wrote in the NEGM and um, that SIGA, the TPOC, um maker had said they hadn't really had many conversations with the FDA about what they wanted to see for an EUA. But I'm just saying, like, it's just surprising the authority isn't there, not just for them, but for, you know, who knows what's hiding in some of some drug developer's closet, right? Or what therapeutic mm-hmm. might be out there that a scientist thinks, oh, maybe we can do some study or some small trial because this might be helpful. And, you know, we saw things like happen with COVID where things you didn't necessarily expect to be used, you know, things that were sort of in the closet, repurposed or right in the pipeline that people say, "Hmm, maybe we need to just take a moment to think about whether we can help in this crisis. So that's what I think. That's why it puzzles me for the, with the HHS declaration for FDA not being broader because it's not so much like, right, you know, I think somehow people have like associated with, oh, they're not allowing this one product to go out there. I think it's more just like they're setting up a situation where you're closing off a framework for a lot of people or a lot of possibilities um, as well. Well, you're certainly uh, making it more administratively complicated if uh, circumstances arise that you feel you do need to issue a therapeutic uh, EUA, not that it would be uh, too much of a delay, but you have to sort of get get, it, get the secretary to uh, reissue that de- declaration in a, uh, in a broader way. But part of it may be that, uh, you know, FDA doesn't want to be overwhelmed by EUA requests for, you know, this, that, and the other thing that's sort of kind of that they um, had certainly sort of kind of uh, had a mountain of requests that they had to work through uh, under uh, uh, COVID. And this is, uh, um, you know, probably not going to end up the same way, even if they had uh, um Opened up the administrative uh, floodgates, but uh, to the extent that they can sort of kind of control what they um, what they want to see, uh, you know, limiting the uh, scope of the initial EUA uh, helps them do that. That's <laughs> that's an interesting way to think about it. I'm not sure that's like what you want an agency <laughs> how to how you want an agency to be thinking about it in a you know in a public health emergency. But yeah, I mean, certainly we know they were sort of they've been inundated a lot for the past few years and. Um, what their capacity is right now to deal with, you know, two competing emergencies is questionable. I mean, they also, and, you know, I, I don't know if, if it, I have no, nothing to base this on, Maybe they could, they could also view the traditional approval pathways as sufficient for whatever, if it's TPOX or something else, if they wanted to come in and you just, you know, whether, you know, you, if you want to try and do it through accelerated approval, maybe they feel like they have a biomarker that would get them through accelerated approval, maybe you know, or something something along those lines. That to where it's not that it's not it's not that it's wrong. It's just or it's not that they forgot or don't want to. It's just they don't feel it's necessary. So anyway, it's an interesting thought. This is certainly not going away, but um, you know, so we'll be we'll 
we'll we'll be I'm sure we'll be talking about this again, you know, in the in the coming weeks as uh, <clears throat> as monkeypox continues to kind of evolve. Anybody who's listening just wants to like I could like have a whole you know day of just conversation about this. It's, <laughs> it's, it's fun. Next up is the drug pricing bill named the Inflation Reduction Act. The Senate passed the bill on Sunday after a marathon session, and the House is set to consider it next. I should also note that another of our colleagues, Kathy Kelly, is not here talking with us right now because she's covering the House debate as we speak. Sarah, you're look, you looked at this, too. We're starting to get some more analysis on the potential impacts of the bill, though. Right. I mean, so um, the, the, the drug pricing debate, I think, is a, a gift that just keeps giving in terms of how the impacts of things will play out. One interesting thing is now that the expectation is this will pass the House, it will be signed by um, President Biden. I almost said President Obama. <laughs> um you know, now we're going to finally maybe have some some chance to really, you know, answer some of the questions people have been arguing about for years about what the impacts are of this. Of course, I think some things are so kind of existential, it's hard to ever really get data on what are the impacts of some of these drug pricing bills. Like, it's hard to, how do you figure out what what wasn't developed, you know, or what might not what how decisions trickle down in terms of investment from a bill like this but yeah there's just i think like as we get closer to passage people have just been looking at little um you know points in the bill like you know um mike mccann for us took a look at you know well how will this negotiation process set up in the bill impact something like the pediatric um exclusivity incentives and development of drugs for pediatrics. And he sort of argues that, um, you know, could there be a disincentive to go after that pediatric exclusivity now um, for certain products because just of where the timing of negotiations might come in for a product versus where you get protected on the exclusivity, it may not be as attractive anymore. you know, I wrote a story earlier in the week that was just about ways, um, you know, pharma patent settlements with brand and generic companies could um, have new settlement strategies for if companies want to try and get their drug off the negotiation target list. Could they craft some unique um, reverse payment settlements with a generic or biosimilar company, essentially allowing them to enter the market so there's some competition that would take the drug off of of HHS's negotiation target list because you can only negotiate for single source drugs. But could they craft it in such a way that like it's better, it's still the brand company keeps enough revenue while allowing a generic that it's better to allow the generic than to be sort of on the negotiation list. So there's, I think, um, you know, there's going to be some rulemaking to work out too. So there's going to be lots of things like where people are going to try and figure out, okay, so you sort of, we have this core bill, but, you know, where are the where are the levers, I guess, for industry, pharma industry to still sort of influence this process and the various the various kind of drug pricing processes set up by the bill, whether it's through regulation or other things, and just again, how do their development strategies and business strategies shift because of it? Um, you know, um, 
So there's, you know, somebody I talked to yesterday for a story that I'll, I'll, I'll work on later and everybody can read, you know, next week on, you know, what comes next for, you know, people pushing for drug pricing. You know, somebody said this is sort of the beginning of the, you know, fight with pharma. This is not the end for them. So, I mean, this is not a... I know Mike McCann and I might have like slightly different, you know, ways of characterizing this bill, but it's not the be all and end all for U.S. drug pricing. This is not the end. This is still going to be a topic on everybody's mind. So there's going to be a lot to track both in terms of new drug pricing pushes, in terms of policy and legislation. And then again, lots of people are going to try and figure out exactly what we really get out of this bill. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable just to look at the uh, parallels with the, uh, you know, Obamacare, uh, the ACA Act, and uh, um, how everyone's also already gearing up, not just for the implementation and sort of the adjustments of the business strategies that you're talking about, uh, Sarah, but also through kind of the uh, the counter-strike, you know, like what will the, uh, you know, inevitable lawsuits target or sort of if uh, Republicans take control of Congress, how might they be able to uh, um, you know, sort of kind of uh, bottle up uh, um, progress on uh, implementation and uh, all the all the like. So there's sort of kind of so many uh, um, different facets uh, of uh, of what comes next. Uh, you know, uh, beyond just uh, getting it to the president's desk and uh, um, starting implementation. So it's uh, fascinating to watch how it uh, how both the uh, the the pro um, IRA. Uh, um, uh, forces answer the uh, the anti IRA forces. I can't believe we're uh, we're calling it that. I, don't, I need to come up with some other uh, shorthand. I was, you know, I agree. To, I, f- I feel funny saying IRA. In, <laughs> right, we have to put negotiations in quote marks every time we talk about this. Or what's the uh, what's the uh, the their, uh, the the uh, uh, CMS has to come up with some clever acronym for the uh, the office that's going to uh, going to do this, and we'll 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 follow the, their their lead. But uh, um, or uh, you know, listeners, if you have a suggestion as to how we should uh, shorthand this process, please let us know. But uh, um, but it will be uh, loads and loads of uh, um, you know, sort of uh, um, to uh, to follow both the uh, pro and against uh, um, implementation of this as it as it rolls out. Yeah, you wonder if people will confuse this with like their uh, their retirement funds or or something at some point. <laughs> yeah, but um, what one of the I, I was actually really fascinated by um, McCann's story on pediatric exclusivity because you know I'm I'm wondering now if you could you could run into situations where you know they, where they start tweaking with incentives to say instead of saying you get six months of exclusivity for doing a pediatric trial, could you see the incentives being created to do things like, we'll delay negotiations for six months, we'll, or we'll delay negotiate, you know, you, we won't put you on the list for another year or something like that, you know, because these type, because the incentives, the incentives to do the, to use the incentives is going to be changed or be adjusted because of this. I mean, this, that's the, 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 the issue he pointed out, which like personally, I feel like I need a very pretty colorful timeline of where all these points line up. It's very hard to contextualize, right? How all these different incentives or, you know, negotiation time points intersect and stuff. But I, I mean, if something like that is deemed to be a problem, I could see like a bipartisan legislative fix. Like, I don't know if it's what you described, Eric, right? But something like that could be 
done. I mean, we know, again, I think, you know, to Matt's point, nothing is ever quite as done as you think is done in Washington, right? So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, we could see both, you know, I'm not sure it could be done something that would be done through regulation. But yeah, I think there's like so many avenues to keep following versus like, what's the impact of this law? What do we need to track in terms of implementation? Then are there any like particular loopholes that people work on to try and fix afterwards? And then what's the new legislation? I do have to say in thinking about like the ACA comparison Matt made, um, I think one of the things that was done fairly thoughtfully in this bill is I think they tried to prevent it from being a policy development where it was going to take like a decade to implement, you know, <laughs> thinking to like something like the biosimilar pathway and how long it took from the ACA being enacted <laughs> to people, you know, feeling a benefit from that. A lot of the drug pricing stuff, um, not all of it is like, you know, takes effect immediately, but it's a much shorter period of time. And I think there are going to be some things that need to be dealt with in regulation, but um, perhaps a lot fewer things for CMS to decide than they sometimes are left with. So mm -hmm. I, th that'll be something in else like interesting to see is like, is there like a clear sort of benefit from Congress being a little bit more specific and descriptive as to what they want to happen. So both in, so it's not just like the dates they tried to leave, I think less time, you know, for things to take effect, but also I think they tried to be a bit more prescriptive into what had to be done to sort of avoid long regulatory back and forth. And uh, Derek, to your point, uh, you know, I think it'll uh, in a large degree uh, uh, depend on how much this Medicare pricing impacts the private sector. So if there's still, you know, a, you know, incentive to, uh, um, you know, develop a pediatric uh, um, uh, study for uh, um, for six more months, and it sort of kind of has a meaningful uh, a lifespan. Sort of kind of in the uh, um, in the private insurance market, uh, um, you know, it's not going to be sort of kind of the uh, perhaps the uh, um, the crisis that it could be. But uh, you know, if these prices really sort of do um, become the uh, the benchmark for sort of how uh, um, all U.S. reimbursement. Uh, Works and it, uh, you know, you're absolutely right that we sort of do need to uh, revisit sort of kind of how those incentives are uh, are structured and perhaps peg them to negotiations more than they are uh, they are now. Yeah, there's another another interesting thing I saw. I believe this was in a story that Kathy Kelly did was that the the one of the analyses found th thinks that Part B will generate more savings than Part D. Right. Um, you know. In in part because you know Part D there I guess there are Part B doesn't have the concessions that Part D has in terms of price. Yeah, like all this is so it's sort of like hard to wrap your head around, but it is interesting that Kathy pointed out um, from this analysis that given you know so the law sort of sets up in the negotiation framework that there's like a minimum negotiation the government gets and this analysis, which a lot of it was done by Washington analysis, um, you know, they were able to point out that in a lot of cases, Part D is already getting close to what the government, the, the bill would sort of guarantee the government. So um, the, the one thing I thought Kathy's piece pointed out, though, is like HHS can't like skip a drug because 
maybe it's not actually a good target for negotiation if the private sector is already doing a good job negotiating for the drug. <laughs> Does that make sense? Um, yeah, think, yeah. You can't say I like think, our, the price is fine. We're okay with that one. Let's move on to the next one. They're right, like, but they, I think they have to stay with the list. <laughs> but then the question sort of becomes, and so like obviously the reason why in Part B, if you're negotiating with a Part B drug, you know, there's more room potentially for that to be impactful is because there is, you know, Part B, it's just a, f a formula of for reimbursement in Medicare that's based on the list price, essentially the company sets. Um, but then, so there are questions though, I think about, you know, how do all these policies and their impact on different parts of the drug system, right? Impact like small molecules versus biologics, right? Versus a, a, a Part B efficient, <laughs> a physician administered drug versus drugs in the outpatient setting. Like, are there things in this law that will just like push companies to different types of therapeutics, whether it's for different diseases or different formulations, you know, mm -hmm. and that yeah. sort of thing. So those are other impacts I'm sure people will be tracking for years to come. Yeah, it's, it's, somebody already mentioned to me today that, the, you know, the, this bill is being drowned out by drama in other areas of DC, whatever you want to call it, uh, you know, uh, you know, political issues. Um, but, but I, but I am expecting, you know, a, a big signing ceremony and celebration kind of once this gets to president Biden's desk, assuming the house finishes it, um, whether that's, you know, in the coming days, he's on vacation today, but, uh, you know, in the coming days we, we should there, there, I, I'm, I'm guessing that there will be some, you know, despite all the questions, there will be, there will be some celebrating, um, and, and, uh, you know, jumping around and, and uh, touting this that uh, that will be done going forward. Finally, we're going to consider an interesting comment by Principal Deputy Commissioner Janet Woodcock. During a presentation to the Alliance for a Stronger FDA, which is an advocate for more agency funding, Woodcock laid out the advantages of a technology upgrade that she's overseeing. Usually a new computer system is not that interesting, but there is a compelling case for it. The agency systems are outdated. Each center has kind of their own system and they don't really talk to the other ones, which makes it really hard for staff to find records across centers when they're needed. But in an interesting twist, Woodcock said that had the, had the upgrade already been in place and all records would have been readily available to staff, some regulatory decisions may have been different. Without naming specifics, she said there are instances, including recent instances, instances where decisions could have been better, more timely, or different had more information been available. Now, there's no question that is a great argument for an IT upgrade, but I'm curious what your reactions are to this idea that the FDA could have had made different decisions if this IT upgrade was in place. Thanks, Derek. I was going to say, uh, just like you were uh, saying earlier that, uh, um, you know, various political dramas could sort of detract from the uh, the meaty political uh, legislation that's going on uh, here. I think, uh, uh, you know, Woodcock's comments are uh, are fascinating and perhaps even a, a strong impetus for the um, for the upgrades. But uh, um, as much as I would like to know what she's talking about, I think sort of thinking about sort of kind of how uh, FDA will be, uh, will be different if they sort of get more integrated uh, um Data systems is uh, is perhaps the uh, the more important thing that we should be uh, we should be focused on. But uh, but but you know whoever knows, please tell us. So. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. Yeah, it's just it's sort of hard to know how to take her comment and without knowing um, 
exactly what types of decisions were different or could have been better, right? Like, like, did they, could they have acted faster on a safety issue and somehow, you know, like if their systems were better and what does that equate to in terms of human health or, li- you know, or, or lives or do they really feel like, was there a drug they would have approved if something was, to, you know, it's just, it's hard to know exactly the, from her comment, exactly the extent of the problems caused by this. Um, I mean, some of her comments to me make it seem like it could be a pretty dire situation or or is she just sort of using kind of this leverage to make sure Congress is paying attention and they get the money they need to be efficient? Um, and maybe we should just be worried about the angle like Matt was sort of focusing on. But, um, you know, when I read the story, I was reflecting on when I wrote um, piece, I guess it was late last year, early this year about kind of like Woodcock's legacy at FDA, given that, you know, we, she, you know, Califf was going to take over and we expect she won't, you know, stick around FDA too much longer at this point. You know, people pointed out that Woodcock has always been somebody who's been interested in these sorts of operational mm-hmm. things at FDA that aren't particularly sexy. <laughs> um, they're the kind of things sometimes that leaders like her can punt to underlings to deal with um, and focus on the more, you know, fun, high profile, you know, <laughs> exciting stuff. But it, it, this seems like the type of issue that Woodcock is just it's, it's not going to ignore and is drawn to in a way that some leaders aren't. So, I mean, it's I think it just speaks to kind of, you know, how she's operated at FDA, too, and her sort of legacy and sort of really improving how the FDA has functioned over the years. So she's, even though she may be pointing out these problems, I think making systems at FDA work much better than they have is one thing people point out that you can really credit her for um, in her um, general career at FDA. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, the fact I think that, you know, that it you know, kind of supports your point that the fact that they cre- that they've requested a formal reorganization to create an office in charge of this, that this whole tech upgrade, which is, you know, most I'm sure our listeners know FDA hates doing reorg- official reorganizations because they take forever and they require all these approvals and it has to go through a million different levels to, you know, to get done. The fact that they're willing to do that for this is, you know, shows the dedication that they're that they're putting to this. And it probably also show, you know, illustrates the, uh, you know, the need that they the the urgency and the need that they have to, you know, to get this that they want to get this done. Um, It yeah. But I I still think it's fun to think about one, what they have, what they think they have that could have changed minds on you know that that people just can't for whatever reason can't can't really get access to or can't find when they need it or whatever but also you know well we all know there were you know decisions that were that people have questions pretty well pretty much people question all of them but you know what you know which ones hmm, could you do you think could have gone the other way that it's it Sorry, that's just a fascinating question. I mean, I you you know, there's people sitting around thinking about it, which is you know exactly why I'm sure uh, Dr. Woodcock didn't want to give you know specific examples because you know there were there are lots of people who would pounce on that as a uh, you know as a as a potential you know whatever you want to call it litigation or whatever um, to 
to uh, to criticize them about it. But uh, right. and yeah. I was I was going to say Congress <laughs> has a habit of like, particularly I was, would say Republicans a bit more than Democrats of saying, oh, like agency you messed up. We're not going to yes. give you more money to f- fix that. Like I think with the baby formula, this has come up a bit where they've said like, look, we really need more funding, support, all this stuff to do a better job, right? Policing these industries and keeping people safe. But what Congress sometimes says is, you messed up. Why would we give you more money? And here, so it's hard to make that case that, look, we know we could be doing better if you would just give us the resources and funding to do better, because sometimes that admission that you're not doing um, as good as you would like somehow sort of hurts you know, yourself, yeah. they say, well, if you can't do a good job, why would we give you more money? Or how do we know you're going to do a better job or do a good job and not just waste our money? So yeah, it's, there's a, it's definitely yeah, there's, a tricky, like, political situation to be in for an agency. Yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of people the, who don't uh, like to throw throw down the black money down the black hole type of thing. Right. It's very much a catch-22 that if you can you know, if you act like you're like everything's fine, why why increase funding? But if you act like you're uh, you're messing up, why increase funding? You know, it's just sort of like uh, you know, it's just sort of a, a challenge either way. Yeah. Well, there's already a pilot project under going um, going with the with Cedar and this the uh, the Center for Food Safety and Applied Nutrition that's going to um, you know use some new software to try and streamline inspections. Um, they're hoping they're hoping will at least lay the groundwork for some of the changes they want to do. They've already they're asking for funding in the FY23 budget, which needs actually needs to be done in a couple of weeks, along with the uh, the FY24 budget. They're probably going to ask for more money. So we'll see if they can get the project off the ground here uh, going forward. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.